Hello, is this Maury? Yeah, Chris, hi. Hi, Maury. I think we called one another at the same exact time. Amazing serendipity. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 15. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. My guest today is writer, consultant, teacher, and nonprofit guru, if you will, Maury Warshawski. Many of you have either heard of or have read his book, Shaking the Money Tree, The Art of Getting Grants and Donations for Film and Video Production. If you haven't, well, it's a must-have on your independent filmmaking bookshelf, and today's program will attest to that. Maury, welcome to The Documentary Life. It's wonderful to have you on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. To give my audience a clear idea of who you are, Maury, and what you do, I'd like to start out by reading the bio that comes from the About section at the back of your book, Shaking the Money Tree. So bear with me for a moment. Maury Warshawski is a consultant, facilitator, and writer who specializes in helping nonprofit organizations on issues of strategic planning. His work is characterized by a commitment to the core values of creativity, tolerance, thoughtfulness, and transparency. His work in the nonprofit sector includes serving as the executive director of three arts organizations, including Bay Area Video Coalition, Northwest Media Project, and Portland Dance Theater. And since 1986, as a consultant to a wide variety of clients, including the National Endowment for the Arts, National Assembly of State Arts Agencies, Habitat for Humanity, which we'll touch upon in a minute here, Maryland State Arts Council, President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities, and many others. As a writer, Warshawski's works have appeared in many journals and newspapers, including Emmy Magazine, Grantmakers in the Arts Newsletter, Los Angeles Times, Parenting, and San Francisco Examiner. In addition to Shaking the Money Tree, his books include The Fundraising House Party, The Next Step, and a State Arts Agency Planning Toolkit. So I kind of wanted to, to read that and give our, our an audience or give some of my listeners who may or may not know who, who you are, Maury, some um, better idea of, of the man that we are speaking to today. So again, thank you for coming on the show today, Maury. You're welcome. I'm impressed. I want to meet me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. Who wouldn't? <laughs> and, you know, that can be, I would imagine, an element to what we'll be speaking to at some point or maybe throughout today is, mm-hmm. you know, empowering sort of the documentary filmmaker, empowering them to learn how to speak about themselves, to learn how to even sell themselves to potential um, donors. Um, and I guess we'll get into that in a bit. Um, what I wanted to, I guess, ask you at first, um, it, I guess it makes sense to talk a little bit about your background. The biggest question initially is, why don't you let us know how you first got involved in the world of nonprofit, since that is the world that you've been really inhabiting for over 30 years, correct? Yes. Well, actually, I've been a freelance consultant for 30 years, okay. which is hard to believe. And before <laughs> that, uh, I was heavily involved in the nonprofit sector. I'm, I'm very devoted to the nonprofit sector. Right. My life has been in, uh, in and out, 
of different uh, portions of it. So I, I started my career as a, a teacher and instructor. I went to the Graduate Writers Workshop at the University of Iowa right. in poetry. And then uh, I taught in an interdisciplinary arts program at the University of Southern California. And then through a fluke, I was invited to be an intern with the National Endowment for the Arts. Uh, but they had made a clerical er error. Instead of assigning me to the uh, writer's department, they assigned me to the dance program. <laughs> and uh, uh, long story short, that summer changed my life. When I got back to Los Angeles, I quit teaching at USC, and I moved my family up to Portland, Oregon to run a modern dance company, Portland <laughs> Dance Theater. Uh, and that's how I started my career working with nonprofit organizations. Um, I'm going to stop you right yeah. there for a second, Moy. Yeah. I, uh, I, we are based uh, out of Portland, Oregon. Oh, I and, love Portland. Yeah. I, I actually, until I had read this recently, I, I didn't know that you were not only involved in the Portland Dance Theater, but that you lived in Port, that your family lived in Portland. When was that and for how long? That's exciting. Yeah, we moved up there in uh, 1978 and yeah. then... Uh, Left in 1983-84, and both of my daughters were born in Portland. Okay, okay. So I have very, very fond memories of Portland, and the only reason we left was I couldn't get any work work there. <laughs> I was going to say, you, either you couldn't get work there or you couldn't get work done here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. It's changed a little bit since you were last living here, Maury. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've lived off and on in Portland um, now since 96, and to see um, to see what is what has happened um, throughout the city is it's really kind of mind boggling. And I know other, I guess, sector than the real estate sector can tell you what's been happening here. It's it's nuts. Yeah, I know that among your list of clients is Habitat for Humanity. Yeah, and we here on the show have a connection to Habitat through a prior guest and good friend of the show, Faith Fuller, who runs Desktop Documentaries. Mm -hmm. And we had Faith on, I think, uh, not quite two months ago at this point. Uh, what was your connection with Habitat? Um, well, I got a contract along with a fellow consultant to help them do strategic planning for nine months. And they were one of the best clients I've ever had. They were wonderful to work with. And, of course, you know their work is important and wonderful as well. But uh, they... Uh, I had a really good time working with them because they did everything we asked them to do, which mm. is unusual with a client. And they came up with a really, really good strategic plan that helped shape their destiny for the next few years. It made a big difference. When they bring you aboard to do that, <laughs> what are you helping them achieve through strategic planning? Learning things about themselves internally and learning about their external environment. So with Habitat, we had them uh, go out to their stakeholder groups, the people that they serve uh, and the people that they get funding from to gather information about what they need, what they like about Habitat, what they don't like. And then we looked very deeply internally at the organization, talked to staff, talked to board. We looked at all their data, their fiscal data. And uh, we also did an exercise that I like to do with, uh, with every client, including individual filmmakers. We did a benchmarking exercise where they went out to four or five other organizations that are like them in other communities yeah. um, and took a look at what they do 
in their work, what size budgets they have, how they raise money, so that they can benchmark themselves against those other organizations. So that was phase one. Yeah. And then phase two of planning is to do a retreat where we, and this also I do with every client, including filmmakers, we look at their values, clarify those. We talk about their mission and get that straightened out. And then uh, we do some visioning to find out where they want to be in the future. And then after that, we rolled up our sleeves and created a strategic plan that hopefully would get them somewhere into the future where they want to be. Uh, yeah. Well, let's 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 get into that a little bit. You, you just mentioned that, and that's a pretty good segue into an area that obviously is a big part of the work that you do in this idea of establishing um, – and let's use, you know, our documentary filmmakers, right? Let's use them as an example. Right. What kind of work are you doing them and why is it important to to be, you know, working with this idea of core values and a mission statement? Maybe you can tell us what are those things and why it's important for yours and their work. Sure. Um, well, those three concepts, core values, uh, mission or purpose, and vision – are central to all of my work with every client. Um, and I've come to that conclusion really be, being dragged into it because it's not natural for me to be concerned about those issues. But what I've learned uh, very deeply with my work with uh, nonprofits and with individuals is that these are the three large rocks that have to be rectified. If you want to be really good at your work yeah. uh, and if you, you want to be impactful, then they have to be rectified. <clears throat> so when I first started doing this work, after I left the Bay Area Video Coalition, I started getting calls from filmmakers. And the thing that they wanted to talk about was fundraising and how to get money. Of course, right? <laughs> of course, because that's like, you know, at least 80% of the work that you're doing That's as an independent filmmaker is looking for money. Yeah. Uh, and what I realized when I started to look at uh, the filmmaker's materials and talk to the filmmaker was that the heart of the issue with not getting the money, the impediments that they had to overcome to get the money, really had to do with uh, not the project itself, but with the fact that these three large rocks hadn't been rectified yet by the filmmaker. Mm. So I realized, and that's why if a filmmaker wants to consult with me, uh, then I'm very strict about this. They have to do a two hour initial consultation with me right. that begins, that begins with rectifying these three large issues. Give me a, um, maybe a, a real basic sort of idea. And I'm going to throw sure. out the three sort of tenets here, if you will, um, for a filmmaker that you're talking with, how do you explain what are core values? What are you looking yeah. for? So let me get in, into these three. So yep. uh, the core values are who you are very deeply that you can't change. Uh, and these are the basic values that you've been stuck with. Once you've become a late teenager or certainly by early adulthood. <clears throat> and they don't govern your life, but they certainly affect everything that you do. Mm. So if you think back, for instance, on a moment 
uh, in the last year or so when you were incredibly uncomfortable either in a situation or with a task you were asked to do or a person that you were working with, I would posit that that discomfort had to do with a very, very deep disconnect in core values, that a value you hold very deeply that you can't do anything about <clears throat> wasn't being recognized or was being abused by the person you were with or the action you were asked to undertake. So what's important is that... Uh, um, I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah, you need to understand that uh, because there's nothing you can do about it. And uh, it really affects uh, how effective you can be in situations. Uh, so when you're in a situation where your values are not being held deeply and respected, you are going to be very, very uncomfortable and unhappy. Uh, and eventually you're going to either have to get a divorce or leave. Because the core value disconnect is an irreconcilable difference. Mm. So <clears throat> what's lovely about these three rocks is that they're both theoretical and practical. So that's the theory of it. And in practice, here's how you use it. Yeah. The first way you use it is you raise it to the surface and you broadcast it to the world. Uh, and when you are making selections and decisions about the people you will work with, the situations you will get involved with, uh, the first thing you do is you look at, at the core values overlay. So if I want to work with a team of people and I'm hiring an intern or a cinematographer or an editor, when I'm interviewing them, when I'm talking to them, I'm asking about values first. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> right. <clears throat> Yeah, it's like aligning yourself with the right people, aligning, or at least aligning yourself with the people who have the core core values and belief system that you do. Exactly, because that's what you must have that bottom line on your team. Mm. And then skills and skills and talents, of course, are important, but they are secondary to the value. Man, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. I've had I've had instances where it's worked in my favor and I've had instances where it became clear and working with somebody, you know, on a, um, you know, sort of me being a director working with a producer and I've had it where, where myself and the producer clearly through more and more working together, it would, it would, I would realize that we definitely had a belief structure or core values that were not in alignment and man, trying to work through that and navigate that, I, at some yeah. point, it's yeah. You you just divorce or leave, like you said. It's just it doesn't work. Exactly, it very very rarely works. The only time it works is when the two parties have the exact same goal that they need to achieve. Yeah, like yeah. getting someone out of office, for instance. Right? Oh no, boy. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then and then you can overcome your core value uh, uh, disconnect, but only temporarily. Yeah, and it'll still be uncomfortable. Uh, so, and the same the works for. That, and I'll, I'll just add, you know, what I what I'm seeing here, and I bet you're going to get to this with all of it is, yeah. I imagine the people maybe that I'm going to be, if I'm a, you know, you know, if I'm seeking funding or when I'm seeking funding, the people that I will be dealing with for funding, I'm going to be looking for people with similar core values as well because they want yeah. that in return. Is that? Would you say that's true? Exactly. So that's the second practical way you use core values. 
It's your brand. It's what you're promising everyone. Uh, and that's why uh, you want to broadcast those values and make them clear very quickly. You'll notice in the description you read of me in my biography, Yeah, I, you read off my core values. Right. Yeah. And so what I'm signaling to people is here is who I am very deeply. And if you don't like this, that's fine. Please don't call me. Let's not work together. (laughs) But if you like this, then there's a highly likelihood that our working together will succeed. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And it brings me clients and it detracts clients from me. So it's a great shorthand that so you bring up something else that's crucial to filmmakers and that is my theory is that when people give you money it's a values exchange yeah they're investing in a set of values that they hold deeply that that know you will broadcast and amplify in the world fundraising is really about values excellent so that's square number one yep square number two is um mission or purpose and this is the heart of why you do anything and the interesting thing about mission is i tell all my clients that you play a number of different roles in your life one is a professional role you are a filmmaker you might also be a teacher or instructor or a waitress you might be something else professionally Um, Then you have personal roles you play in your life as a significant other, son or daughter, father, mother. So I tell my clients that for each of these roles, you will be more impactful in each role if you can find your mission for that role. Mm. So the only one that I deal with and with my clients, because I'm not a shrink (laughs) officially. Yeah, right. (laughs) Is uh, their mission as a filmmaker. And the question I want them to answer for, for me is like, why are you doing this? Why are you, why are you, uh, why do you want to be a filmmaker and, or why are you doing this particular project or both? Project is second. So Got it. that's interesting. The okay. primary thing for me is like, why are you making films? Okay. Okay. Why is that important to you and the world? And, uh, it's rare that I meet a filmmaker who's already articulated that for themselves. And what's more common is that it will take often three to 12 months to find the right wording for that mission. But the important thing is that the time spent on articulating and understanding your mission is time well spent. Any of that time is because it deepens your resolve around the importance of the work. So why is that important? It's important because this work is really hard. (laughs) It's very, very difficult work. Uh, Raising money for a film and making a documentary film that is inherently non-commercial. Exactly. (laughs) Right. It's inherently not going to make you money. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it can. Absolutely. But most of the time it doesn't. That's why you have to raise money for it. Right. Um, That's very, very hard work physically and emotionally. And the only thing that will make it worth it, that's your what I call the driver, mm. is your mission. Mm. Your very, very firm belief that this is so important that it must be done. And that's the role of mission, is giving you a backbone. 
and straightening out something that a word that I like a lot called comportment which is huge in my work. It's at the center of my work, and that is the it filmmaker's is. comportment, how they walk through the world, oh, wow. how they show themselves to everyone in the world. Uh, and once they can locate that mission, it gives them tremendous strength, and it gives them the story they can tell. And it also becomes, like values, a branding tool. So the values at the heart of your brand and the mission help make you different from everyone else. The other way you use it as a tool is you say to yourself, your mantra becomes that whenever and wherever I can, I will do things that further my mission in the world. Mm. And that's why every project you do should be a subset of your big mission. It should help further your big mission in some way. So, Maury, if that's the case, when you're building when when a filmmaker is building their mission it's 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 much more than i want to be a filmmaker because i was born to do this i want to be a filmmaker because i want to create positive change in the world it's is it is it deeper than this or is it as can it be as simple as that it can be whatever is right for the filmmaker mm. yeah <laughs> that's the yeah. best answer i can give you because missions go all over the map now, at one end of the spectrum, there is, let's, I have a client who's a video artist who I've worked with for like 20 years now. Wow. And his mission is simply, I have to do this. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, video art is in my veins. And that's like the mission that I would hear from someone I would call like basically a true artist. Yeah, right. But that's pretty rare in, in my experience with documentary filmmakers. Typically, like 90%, 95% of the filmmakers I work with ha have something that they want to accomplish in the world that's more than just making themselves happy. Yeah. They want to make some kind of change in the world. So their mission is, I want to make this part of the world better because. So it's typically, here's the change I want to make, here's who I want to make it for, and here's how I'm going to make it. And uh, those would be like the big elements in a mission. Core values, mission or purpose. Have we gotten to vision yet? No. So vision is its whole separate animal. And this has its own separate both theory and practical use. And vision, here's how I define vision. Vision is a point in the future that you can identify and make vivid for me and yourself. So I tell my clients travel into the future in your little time machine and land in your future hmm. three, four, five years from now or more if you want okay. and get out of your time machine and look around. What does it look like? What does it feel like? What do you look like? How much money are you making? What kinds of projects are you making now? What have you accomplished in the last three to five years? Uh, what do you want in that future? And more importantly, what do you want more than other things in that future? What do you see in that future that is absolutely essential to you? Because you're going to see many things there. What can you let go of and what must you have? So that's actually the most fun space to go into. I'll bet. I mean, I sit here. I, I mean, you can probably see me and I'm all sorts of things run through my, my brain immediately hearing all of this. I can imagine how fun that would be to explore that. Exactly. So the practical thing about 
the future once you can locate it and make a picture of it or write about it and be specific about it is that's where the excitement is and never underestimate the power of excitement and passion mm. so it gives you the passion uh, so how you use that is you say to your funders and to your potential collaborators and your crew and your team here's the future I want do you want it too here's yeah, exactly. what it looks like right isn't that exciting? Right. Let's right. all go for that. That's why you're giving me money. That's you know, That's why you're giving me your time and your effort and your energy. And it keeps people excited. So that's the first practical use of the vision. Vision, yeah. Now, the second thing, and this is what's important with me and my client and how I can either help them or not, is the future makes you strategic. If you can get a handle on, a bead on, and identify the things that you really, really want more than other things, then you can start being strategic about how you spend your time, your money, and your energy today to move towards those things. Yeah. And you can eliminate things that won't get you there and start using and acquiring uh, skills, talents, uh, assistance that will move you closer to those things you want faster. So that's why you must, must enter the vision space. So the thing about vision is it can change radically or not over the years because things change time, you know, you change and time change mission rarely changes very much and values never change. Mm. So that's one shading to this particular type of system. And that's why I must go through this with every client before we start talking about fundraising. Mm. So a practical example would be, let's say I'm dealing with a documentary filmmaker. <clears throat> and their vision is that they want to be a narrative filmmaker five years from now. Yeah, right, right. That's great. Yeah. So my teaching them how to get grants is a waste of time because what they really need to learn is how to deal with equity investors. Yeah. Um, so there are lots of samples like that, but that's what deepens the work. And once we get that straight, then we can start moving forward and learning and doing and changing and being really effective. Well, Maury, what in the heck do you tell someone as you go through these and you tell a, a client or a potential client and they say, Maury, look, I, I get it. I, I, I've got the core values down. I've got my mission or purpose all set and, and I understand these things fully. But man, the vision component, I'm struggling with that. That I know that's supposed to be maybe the easier one or the one that's uh, that the one that should be the most fun to work with. But I struggle with that because I'm not good with the five or ten or fifteen year plan. Or I can't I don't know what the future holds. And I can't I can't even picture what the future is. What do you tell someone that struggles with that? And do, do, does that ever happen? Do you come across that? Oh sure. That people struggle yeah, with the future component. The vision is a really interesting space and it has a lot of different paths for different people depending on their personalities, heavily dependent on their personalities, oh, I would that, say that, without yeah. doing a whole lecture on that. Uh, <laughs> but with the client who says to me, I can't think that far out, I'd say, well, how far can you think? Ah. You know, six months, a year, two years, three years. I like three years because I know from experience that you can make a major change in your life and your career in three years yeah right yeah and if the change is going to be major then 
uh, it's going to take a minimum of three years. Yeah. Uh, but I would say if you don't know, then that's your homework assignment. Yep. Start playing around with it. Uh, find things that you are excited about and then start imagining it. It's pretty rare that I cannot take a client into some kind of future space uh, that they can't, that they can't begin to start imagining in some way. I would wager that people that are approaching you to begin with inherently, some of that's built in. You know that that they're meeting with you and your consultation services because they want to be exploring these things to begin with. They're already almost halfway there. Yeah, and typically they love this part of the exploration because no other consultant's taken them there, especially in the film and video work. Yeah, world. I bet. You know, yeah, but you have to go there, and it really, really, it just makes a huge difference. It deepens the work in a very important way. Over the past decade, the world of documentary film promotion and distribution has changed dramatically. And what's awesome is, for the most part, is it highly benefits us independent doc filmmakers. However, we do recognize that navigating this new landscape of promotion and distribution can be a bit daunting when you're new to the task. Like, how do you make sense of the VODs and SVODs of the world? How do you find a distributor and sales agent that you can trust and who will work diligently to get your film out into the world? And what are they even looking for anyway? Or wait, maybe you should self-distribute your film. Maybe taking it out on a national tour is the right move for your film. But how would you even go about organizing such a thing? Is your film right for the potentially lucrative educational market? Or are community screenings the way to go? There are so many options available to you to get your film out to its market, but there are a lot of questions you probably have about how to do it, which is why we help you make sense of it all in our flagship program, the Documentary Academy. Inside the Academy, you will create a tailor-made, multifaceted, hybrid documentary film distribution strategy, one that's created based on your film and your film alone. You will have a strategic overview of how you will get your film out into the world and in front of the people who want to see it. Take control of your film distribution and enroll in the Documentary Academy at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. We'll see you there. So, you know the documentary film world quite well yourself. Yeah. And your daughter, Leah, who we're looking to have on the show in the new year, is currently... Oh, good, you're love her. Oh, it's going to be great. She's currently embarking on a festival tour with her most recent project, Big Sonia. I'm thinking that approximately 99% of my audience would have loved to have you, Maury, as their father. I mean, <laughs> I mean, talk about keys to the I kingdom here. That. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, in, in all seriousness, you know, what is it about independent film specifically and independent filmmakers that's appealing to you? Why are you working with these people? Well, I really, really love this sector of, of the nonprofit world. Yeah. Um, and I wish I could afford to spend more time in it because most filmmakers uh, – are broke and can't afford me. Yeah, so of course I make my, my bread and butter is really working with nonprofit organizations yeah. uh, doing strategic planning. But my favorite work is with individual filmmakers. So the thing is documentary filmmakers, especially are creating work that's really important for people to see and that they will not see in any other way. Uh, and they affect the world in you know, of media literacy and of media conversations that the normal media does not, cannot, or will not. 
So their voices are central, I think, to important discussions and to helping make really positive changes in the world. So I'm devoted to the documentary filmmaking sector. I just, I think they're important people. And I know their struggle firsthand. So I'm, I'm happy to be a part of that. Okay, well, let's get back to Leah then. Yeah. So when was she on the clock? Have you been charging her since like age eight? Or like, how is this working here? Because I mean... <laughs> it's free of charge. It's part of my mission yeah. as a father. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, some point when my girls are teenagers, I actually wrote myself a mission statement as a father. Oh, I have. Yes, yes. And and and, and I think mission statements with... with um, your husband or wife uh, or your partner is also a very wise and good thing to do. Okay, so if I'm Leah and you're my father, are you guiding me through fundraising processes or, or are you kind of waiting on the sidelines until I approach you asking for your help? How, how much or how little is your involvement um, in this case been, maybe with Leah? Yeah, I've been deeply involved with uh, helping Leah from day one, yeah. uh, both giving it. Advice when it was unsolicited, yeah. <laughs> uh, and providing advice when it was asked for. Um, so the you know the interesting thing is that uh, even having a fundraising expert in your corner uh, doesn't make the journey uh, easy. Both of the films that she made have been real hard to raise money for. Mm. Uh, even with my assistance. So, for instance, you know, I'm a crackerjack grant writer, and I've helped Leah write grants, but we haven't been real successful getting foundation grants. Wow. And part of that is because her projects just haven't been warm to the private foundation sector. And what we found is that there's been a lot more success getting money from individuals. Yeah. And that's where we put most of our effort. Um, so, at this point. She probably knows more about fundraising than I do. Wow. <laughs> and she's so good at it that I don't need to give her a whole lot of advice, but I still provide a lot of assistance. My wife and I threw a fundraising house party here in Napa for her, which mm -hmm. is, I wrote a whole book on, on house parties. Yes. Uh, and uh, I used to take a look at the first drafts of grants and, uh, and help with those. And now she uses a professional grant writer. So, and she was just in town. Uh, to right. premiere her her new film, and we did some fundraising while that was happening. Uh, Why don't you tell us so, how her film did? Oh my gosh, it's called Big Sonia. It had its world premiere at the Napa Valley Film Festival, and on the night of a, of the awards, we were totally blown away because she won the two awards for featured documentary films. She won the Audience Award. And then she also won the jury award for best feature length documentary of, of the festival. We're just over the moon about that's incredible. it. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Yeah. Great validation of six years of really, really hard work. And, and by the way, it's a really great film. <laughs> I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see it. And, and and as I alluded to earlier, we'll be having her on the show in early, you know, early in the new year. Great. She's the delight. You'll learn a lot from her. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Let's let's um let's talk about the book, Shaking the Money Tree. Sure. Um, this is one of those books, Maury, uh, that, I, as I mentioned earlier on, I feel like it should be on every independent filmmaker, certainly uh, documentary filmmakers' bookshelves. Um, it's one of the must-haves, and of course, there is so many, so many books when you when you're a filmmaker that you that you spend money on, and this one I would say is well worth the investment and time. 
why don't you introduce the book to my listeners who haven't already spent hours scouring it for helpful tips? <laughs> well, the first thing I should say is that it's currently in its third edition, uh, which I think says a lot about its longevity and the importance of its, uh, of its uh, message and the details. Uh, and each time I've done a new edition, I've had to almost completely rewrite it. Wow. And uh, the important thing for me is that it's both a very practical nuts and bolts book, and it's also a book about the theory of doing this work. Yeah. So the first chapter is about mission, vision, and values and getting your comportment straight. Yeah. You could skip that chapter if you want to, but it would be a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> and then the rest of the book just says, here's how to do it. Here's examples how to do it. Here's the nitty gritty of grant writing. Here are things that nobody else tells you about that you must know. And then here are some two sample grants, sample budgets. Yeah. So, And I think that's important that filmmakers need to have both the details and the large vision. How and why is this book appropriate for newer generations of filmmakers, millennials, if you will? Because they might say, well, Maury, we just, you know, we get online and we start up a Kickstarter or Indiegogo fund, which by the way, we, interestingly enough, this show is a great tie-in with my previous one because I talked all about crowdfunding and using Kickstarter as an example. Uh -huh. What do you say to them? I mean, why the heck leave the comfort of your own desk, right? And start banging on doors. Why would we do some, something so antiquated as that? <laughs> the larger thing is that in fundraising, there are some evergreen issues that don't change. And if you're not aware of them and if you don't rectify them, then you will be less effective in your fundraising efforts than you could be or should be. So one of those issues is, for instance, how you articulate your project and what people want to know about your project. Uh, so that's covered in the book. The other huge thing is pitching, how you talk about your project, whether you're doing Kickstarter or knocking on doors or writing a grant. That's a huge, huge thing in, in this particular world, in every fundraising venue, how you talk about your project. Boys and, yeah. yeah, and then how you talk about yourself, how you present yourself. Never, never underestimate the importance of you in this equation. So it's not just beginning filmmakers think I've got a hot idea and a great idea for a film and people throw money at it. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, that's only one part of, of yeah. the equation. Um, the other thing is there are some principles in here that uh, have changed over time that are important for people to get a beat on. And one of them is I just got through talking to filmmakers at the Napa Valley Film Festival about this. I was on the faculty of the artists and residents there. Yeah. And that is the, the difference between uh, community and audience. And I was telling them that in the last couple of years, I have drop kicked out of my vocabulary, the word audience mm. that I think it's really important to think of the people that you want to have cut with you on this journey into the film as a community. Yes, absolutely. We talk a lot about that. Even with this show, the, the premise and, and really mission of this show is about building a community of people. Go yeah. ahead, please. Well, that's great. Yeah. Uh, so that little turn in thinking has enormous consequences for your comportment and your day-to-day yeah. -day activity, right? Uh, 
and for how you do your fundraising. Right. So, you know, the beautiful thing about crowdfunding is that, well, A, to do it right, you have to create a crowd. <laughs> you sure do. Absolutely. You sure do. Oh, well, that's interesting. I have to create a crowd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that has immense immense consequences for you in your day-to-day life as a filmmaker yes, and who does. you work with. Yeah. And your team, the fact that you have to have a team that you can't be alone. Oh, yeah. And that's something I deal with, with all my individual filmmaker clients. You know, this issue of like independent, I hate the word independent filmmaker. Right. I like interdependent filmmaker, you know, get hip to that. Yeah. I like that interdependent because that, that is what it's all. Absolutely. I mean, you can't, and I stress this a lot on the show is that you can't really do, <clears throat> man, I mean, of, of all mediums, if you're going to do something completely on your own, just go write something, go go paint something, go go compose a piece of music, because filmmaking is not that sort of piece of art where you can simply do it entirely independently. It's, as you say, completely dependent on other people and, and, and building a community of people that are both going to be working with you and go on this journey as well as of course, people who will then be wanting to help you with funding who will want to see the film. Yeah, that's really important and often quite difficult for independent people, you know, to do. And that's why the vision space can help with that. You go into the vision space and you see that you have a team around you of like-minded and supportive people. And that can help convince you you need to start creating that team now hello again everyone i wanted to ask a quick favor of you if you like the show please take a moment really like 60 seconds and go to itunes or your podcast app or stitcher or however you're listening to the show find the show by searching for the documentary life And once there, give me a five-star rating and write up a one or two sentences review showing your support for the show. Right now, I need a little more of this type of activity, as I don't quite have the number of ratings and reviews to give me more, more coverage on web searches. I really would like to increase visibility for the show. I know that I have a sizable chunk of listeners. I see the stats every day, and I I mentioned to you earlier the different geographic locations around the world of people that are listening, but I I don't have the ratings and reviews to show for it. So please, especially if you're a regular listener of the show, take a moment and give me a rating and review. Heck, you can hit pause on the show right now before you forget and do this. Totally won't be offended. Seriously, it would help me quite a bit. Thanks. In the book, Maury, you have a great section that uh, early on that details the different entities that have money that you can be that a filmmaker can be approaching. Uh, yes. you know, real briefly, because again, you know, you know, my listeners can can get the book and kind of read through these. Give a real brief, um, a real brief idea of who the different entities are that you'll be approaching for money for your film. Yeah, there are some basic broadcast. And then subsets inside each category. So because there are many, many ways to do it, many avenues. And the difficult thing about fundraising is that each avenue is learnable, but it has different tricks and skills involved with it. So the avenues basically are, uh, my favorite one these days is individuals. Yes. And I can go back and talk about the different ways to get money from individuals. And I want to talk types. about that with you. Yes. Yeah. I have a, a very good reason for that. Go ahead. 
So that's one category, getting money from individual people. Uh, another category is getting money from foundations. And again, the foundation world is very varied. You have large foundations, private foundations, community foundations, uh, small family foundations. So it's a different world, but that's one avenue. And then there's government funding, <clears throat> which again is varied and is a lot like foundation world, but different in significant ways. Uh, and then there's... Uh, funding from corporations and again they're a varied world and, and a different world to to enter with different rules uh, and then there's something I call small businesses or like your local mom-and-pop shop down the street and uh, for non-commercial projects those are the areas where you would get donations uh, so if you want we can delve into any or, or all of those because they're pretty different well let's just delve into a couple of them uh, corporations. Yeah. We always hear of corporations like Coca-Cola or Playboy, mm -hmm. as you mentioned in your book, as having mm -hmm. some kind of foundation, right? The foundation that, that donates money to causes, if you will. Is there a comprehensive list somewhere of these foundations? Um, and what's the best way to find out if a corporation even has such a foundation, if a corporation yeah. has such a mm -hmm. foundation? Well, if a corporation has a foundation, it's very easy to research and locate, uh, you can do it online now, or you can go to your local foundation center library. And um, there's a great website called GuideStar, G-U-I-D-E-S-T-A-R.com. Okay. You can enroll in it for free. And it lists all nonprofit uh, entities and foundations on it. So you can do an easy search. What's more difficult is to locate corporations without foundations. Really? That will give you money, and there's okay. no comprehensive list for that. Okay. Who is the person that we should be speaking to when we contact the foundation of a corporation? Like, uh, what is their title, or who should what 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 department should we be looking for? So you have to understand that uh, if it's a foundation and a corporation, treat them like any foundation. Hmm. If you're going to the corporation, then it's different. Because the corporate door will have three or four different doors you can go through, and that will determine the person you talk to. Okay. At a foundation, if you can talk to any person, you will be lucky. Really? And part of, and part of your research is to find out who at the foundation would talk to you. Okay. Most foundations won't, Most foundations won't talk to you. Mm -hmm. If they will, then typically it's going to be the program officer in charge of you know, media grants or grants in the area, the social issue justice, social justice area, the, the theme of your film, essentially. So most mm -hmm. of the money you're going to get from foundations is not for film because it's film. It's going to be for film because it's about homelessness or the economy uh, or, you know, sexual generational issues. Yeah. It's the issue that they want to fund not so much the film. Uh, but every foundation is different. It could be, if it's a private family foundation, it could be the person who started it yeah. answers the phone, right? If it's a huge foundation like Ford, it's going to be the program officer. Okay. <clears throat> and part of your research is to discover that. So moving on from corporations to something that I know that you like to talk about and I would like to talk about it because I realize the importance of it and that's individuals. <clears throat> So my wife, Steph, and I 
we ran a successful Kickstarter campaign for our current doc project, Elvis of Cambodia. It wasn't a ton. It was 20K. But that enabled us to yeah. get back to Cambodia for five months filming and living costs. When yeah. we came back, of course, we needed funding for post-production. Surprise, surprise. So we, right. sp- we spent a bit of time applying for grants, mm-hmm. putting together another fundraising party, which we'd also done in the past. And then we put together this corporate sponsorship package, hoping to approach, or the idea was to approach big corporations with money. Yeah, We have since decided through experience upon another more different approach, and that's individuals. We're now looking yeah. to target individuals with money. Cambodian or maybe other Asian refugees that have money that would have a natural interest in seeing a film about this most beloved singer to come out of Southeast Asia in the 60s and 70s. So we're now reworking what was once our corporate sponsorship package to make it a little bit more personalized to allow us to target individuals. What do you think of this type of of approach, Maury? I think it's an excellent approach. I'd want to know more about uh, the film and its mission. And the big thing I would want to know about is something I call ecology hmm. or the niche. Uh, so which niches of the community nationally, locally, regionally, internationally do you want to reach? What's the ecology of your potential communities? Who's going to want to see this film? Uh, who's going to want to amplify and get this me- message of the film out into the world? Okay. And, you know, you may not have thought about it deeply or richly enough yet. But that's something I would want to know. Uh, By the way, do you know about, you must know about dengue fever. Oh, of course. They're in the film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Both Uh, both me, Mole, and Zach Holtzman are in the film. They're my favorite rock band. (laughs) Oh, that's so cool. You listen to, wow, more you listen to dengue fever. I love those guys. Have, have well, I'll ask you this. Every album they've ever made. Oh, awesome. <laughs> have you, well, have you explored at where their sound came from? Have you explored or listened to any of the 60s, 70s Cambodian psychedelic rock? Yes, I have a couple of the original psych albums. So. Okay, yeah. awesome. Well, Sinsi Samut, the most famous singer that we're referring to, he's at the heart of our film. So that's awesome yeah. that you know about Dengue Fever and you know about Cambodian rock and roll. Yeah. Uh, Well, I would follow off the long tail of dengue fever somehow. For sure. For sure. Absolutely. So I want to get back to this issue of like uh, your corporate packet versus the individual packet. Yeah. Yeah. So there's some stuff I didn't say about the corporate fundraising. And the first is the only way you're going to crack open the corporate door is if you can find a connection to the corporation. It's really, really difficult to make a cold call to a corporation Uh, and every successful effort I've ever seen for corporate money and there haven't been that many has always entailed someone who would open the door for you who either works at the corporation or knows someone at the corporation and you're you're going to get a market buy and not really a true donation so it's something called enlightened self-interest Corporations are giving to you because you're reaching a community that they want to reach. Mm. And what you're going to have to do when you walk through the door is say, here's who's going to hear and see this film. And they're your customers they're as your well. Customers. Right, right. Yeah. So I would just go straight to the marketing door. Uh, that's great. So, Actually, that's great. Uh, yeah. 
and for individuals, it's a little bit different. Uh, the reason I ask about niche is because Cambodian refugees, even though they might be really interested in the story, might not have the money. Right, right. Yeah, they might have the will, but not the means. Yes, um, we have certainly been finding that. Yeah, but what I would do is uh, have a brainstorming session with a bunch of people in the room saying, who do you know? Who could help us? And start, I'd put together a list of 20, 25 potential donors. Okay. And then strategize how you could possibly get to each one of them. And some of them, and I'd look first for low-hanging fruit. Hmm. Who could you go to or who could someone on your behalf go to them right away and make an ask right away and get a donation? The influencers, and, if you will. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, you know, the key the key book to read on this is uh, The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. Totally. Right. So, Required reading for all of my clients. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then what I would do is for each of the individuals you want to go to, parse out the method that's going to be most effective. With most individuals, the most effective method for getting money is a direct one-on-one -on -one in-person ask. But you can't yeah. do that to everyone. Right. Sometimes, sometimes not to anyone. Uh, but if you can, that's the best way to get money. And then the other method you can use is writing a letter, which should come from someone that they know yep if that's you that's great if not have someone else write the letter okay. it could be an email personal email campaign it could be another house party or two mm -hmm. right so there are lots of ways to do that but uh it's the fastest and most effective way to get money more you mentioned you know making that list of 20 to 25 people that you would potentially like to get money from are they the people that you're targeting for the money or are you saying now bring those 20 to 25 people into the fold and have a brainstorming session with them? Uh, either or both. Okay. Um, so I would be strategic about this. Yeah. Uh, and the phrase you should remember is uh, if you want advice, ask for money. If you want money, Ask, ask for, for advice. advice. Right. So you can you can begin this process by having a brainstorming party. And you know what's beautiful about the brainstorming party is afterwards people give you money. Yeah. <laughs> they haven't you haven't asked them for money. You promise that you will not ask them for money during right. the brainstorming. Uh, and then they get really excited and, and they say, How can I help? I'll give you some money. I'll yeah. write you a check out. I'll give you some of my time. I'll give you the names of my friends. It's a great way to what I call animate the environment. Yeah, yeah, that's lovely. I love it. Something I do want to bring up is the idea of fiscal sponsor or fiscal sponsorship. The importance of that for the, the documentary filmmaker. Help me demystify this idea of a fiscal sponsor for our listeners who may not know what a fiscal sponsor is for and why they, they are important. Yeah. So very briefly, the tax code says yeah. that if I as a donor want to give you, the filmmaker, uh, $1,000 and I want to get a tax-deductible charitable donation hmm. at the end of the year, I must give it to you through a, a nonprofit fiscal sponsor, a 501c3, or you must have a 501c3 nonprofit that you've created. Right. Otherwise, I can't get that tax deduction. So filmmakers have two avenues. One is they can 
set up their own nonprofit, which I only recommend if you're going to be doing this for a long time. Right. <laughs> and you can have lots of big projects. Otherwise, find yourself a fiscal sponsor and I write the check to them and they take a little percentage and give you the money. So my daughter, for instance, has a fiscal sponsor in Seattle, the Northwest Film Center, and you write a check to them. They take their percentage and they give the rest to Leah. Uh, there must be a couple of available in Portland, for instance. Uh, oh, yeah. Does the North, North, yeah. Uh, any nonprofit can work as your fiscal sponsor, but be ca careful about the one you choose. Right. And you can have more than one fiscal sponsor, by the way. Yes, that's actually important. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. Um, there are a bunch I can recommend in the film world. Uh, Fractured Atlas in yep. New York City is great. I know Fractured uh, Atlas. Yeah. Uh, Center for Documentary Film. Documentary out of Boston, right, right. Yes, yeah, they're very good. And, of course, IDA uh, is the, 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 probably the biggest, and they're down in L.A. Down in L.A., yeah. So check them out, uh, and if you're, you know, at, at some point, if you're really serious about getting money from individuals and foundations, yeah. then you're going to need one. You have to do it. Is it just yeah. about the 501c3 umbrella, Maury, or can a fiscal sponsor be something more to the filmmaker? Oh, the fiscal sponsor can be a lot more, but they rarely are. That would be my quick answer. Boy, you nailed that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, that's so true in my experience. Yeah, and that's one of the things you'll want to research and get straight before uh, you get married together. Yeah. yeah. And Yeah. I, you know, on my first doc, Journey to Kathmandu, um, I had my fiscal sponsor through, we mentioned CID, Center for Independent Documentary, yeah. It, it, it didn't, for me, it didn't really pan out the way that I think that I was hoping for. And there are a number of reasons for this. I don't, I don't know, maybe because they were big and had a lot of projects and certainly them being on the opposite coast, I felt that maybe they weren't as attentive as someone like myself was hoping for. Now right. I was also naive to the process. And so right. I, I think that I was really hoping for a fiscal sponsor to also be a, not just, um, a means to funnel uh, funding through to, to as a 501c3 umbrella, but also, yeah. you know, as, as more of a supporter resource for the zillion questions that I had um, as a first time filmmaker at that time. So for the next project, you know, for us, the current one, Elvis of Cambodia, we elected to actually stay more local. And we went with the, the Hollywood Theater, which has um, 501c3 status, and they offer fiscal yeah. sponsor programs for filmmakers here in Portland, right. Oregon. Um, so far, that's working out well. So I guess what I'm trying to say, um, though something like CID may not have worked for me, um, it works clearly well for a lot of people. How do you choose that fiscal sponsor? And is it important... Is there an importance for the filmmaker to choose someone who's a well-known or bigger entity, or is it okay to find someone who's local? Or the rule of thumb is uh, you want to pick a fiscal sponsor that will be respected and trusted by the donor. That's the rule of thumb. <clears throat> and the, the, that's why quite often you'll need more than one fiscal sponsor. So you always oh, need one. You always need one locally for local donations. Yeah. And sometimes you need one nationally because it got more respect. But I always think about the donor, the grantor first and try and understand where they're coming from mm. and who they'll feel comfortable with. 
So they want to send the money to a place that's safe, for instance, and one that they already respect. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So for you, though, expectations are, are important. And if you come in with expectations that can't be met, you're going to be disappointed. Right. And that's why you want to research them, read their contract carefully first, and then have a deep discussion, you know, a fruitful conversation with them before you get married. Yeah. And most fiscal sponsors are just going to be pass-throughs. They're going to take the money, take their percentage, give it to you. Very rarely will they help you write the grant, help you strategize, yeah. uh, you know, look at first drafts, open the doors to other – that's what you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but for that, you're going to have to pay a lot more. Again, <laughs> as I said earlier, being naive to the process, I think, with, with the first project, I think I was certainly looking for some of that and, and, and now realizing that's a bit unrealistic. Um, yeah. Maury, this has been a tremendous, tremendous conversation. What a delight to have you on the yeah. show. I think this is going to be an episode that's going to really, really empower and educate a lot of listeners, a lot of our documentary filmmaker listeners. And uh, right, I, I, so. I can't wait to, I can't wait to put it out there into the world before, before, before we leave here. Um, I want to give you an opportunity where can where can my listeners get a hold of your books and or approach you um, with po for possible consultation? Ah, the best thing to do is come to my website, uh, warshawski.com, W-A-R-S-H-A-W-S-K-I.com. And you can uh, read all about me. You can find my books there, include, including my latest poetry book. Yes. Uh, you can get all my uh all my stuff there and you can find my travel schedule. And there's also a page to, that describes how I consult with individual filmmakers and what I charge. Um, and that's the best way to keep up with me. Maury, do you mentioned a travel schedule? Do you give workshops at all? Yes. Um, I travel all the time. Happy to do workshops anywhere in the world. Yeah. Uh, just write me a check and I'm there. Awesome. Let's <laughs> go to Cambodia sometime. I would love to. I would just love to. Fantastic. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. Maury, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. We look forward to talking with Leah uh, early in the new year. And um, let's have you on again sometime, man. This was such an exciting and, and, and enlightening conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And good luck to all of you. Thank you, Maury. Hey, can I ask a quick favor? If you found this podcast helpful in living your doc life or making your doc film, will you help us share it with more people by giving us a stellar review on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast? We'd really appreciate it. And you'll be helping the doc filmmaking community find us. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.